at Rutgers University. We broadcast on the Higher Ed Live Network, and you can tune in to Student Affairs Live along with my brilliant friend and co-host, Heather Shea Gassers, Wednesdays at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. If you're unfamiliar with past episodes, I highly recommend you check out in favor of the archive link we're tweeting out now. In a moment, I'll introduce you to our guests, but we can't do that without first giving a shout-out to the sponsors that make Student Affairs Live possible. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing communication firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. M. Stoner is offering a free webinar on visual design for digital stories on July 20th. Do you know how strong visual design supports storytelling? In this webinar, M. Stoner will explore principles for creating visual interfaces that encourage reading, exploration, and interaction. Registration is free, and we're tweeting out a link shortly where you can sign up. ACPA College Student Educators International is also pleased to provide support for Student Affairs Live, one of the many ways you can be innovative with your own professional development. Visit myacpa.org to discover the next way to engage with your own personal and professional <coughs> development. I want to take a moment also to thank Kate Zula, who is in the studio with me right now, monitoring the back channel for getting to me your best content and questions from the Twitterverse. I want to remind everyone that these episodes are live, and your engagement through questions and comments on Twitter really improves the quality of the conversation. Now, finally, I'm very honored to have join me today Cindy Kane, Veronica Rie, Ryan Gardner, Brian Crawford, and you can read their full biographies on today's episode page. Can we start off by having you each describe your current role and your favorite student program of all time, and why? And let's go from left to right, at least on my screen, left to right with Brian Cropper. Yeah, so hello. Um, as Tony introduced, I'm Brian Proffer. I'm at Michigan State University currently. Um, I'm an assistant manager for our University Activities Board. And so I advise, uh, co-advise our board of directors, uh, student employees that we hire to facilitate our programming. And I also um, facilitate some of our and coordinate some of our fundraising that we do for our office. We are part uh, general board, uh, general fund money, and also part fundraising uh, funded. So I coordinate some of our fundraisers for that. Um, I think the most um, favorite student <coughs> program is actually here at MSU when I came, is our U-Fest, where we open up our uh, union building. Uh, we have tons of activities on all of our floors. We have tons of giveaways, tons of free merchandise, um, product, and whatnot from sponsors. So, um, yeah, I think that's my uh, favorite activity so far. Fabulous. Okay. Brian G. Hey everybody. Hi Tony. Thanks for having me today. Um, I am Brian Gardner. I'm the Assistant Dean and Director of Student Involvement at Maryville University. I'm also currently the immediate past chair for the NACA Board of Directors. Um, in my role at, at Maryville, I, I work with both the Student Involvement team and the Residential Life team to uh, create as dynamic of a student engagement experience as we can across campus. Um, my, I guess my favorite, I, I've been at Maryville for 13 years now, so I, try, I was trying to think about what my favorite, I asked my wife this morning, she goes, I can tell you your least favorite program, <laughs> so, you know, okay. Um, my, my favorite program every year is probably our involvement fair, though. It's, there, there's the most energy, the, the faculty love it, the students love it. Um, it's always kind of that birth of a new year and new opportunities, so that's probably my favorite, my favorite student program. 
Uh, I, I want to find out what that least favorite program is after the episode. Actually, I might mention it in one of the one of the feedback <laughs> questions. Fabulous. <laughs> All right, on to you, Cindy. Hi, I'm Cindy Kane. I'm the Director of Student Involvement and Leadership at Bridgewater State University. Um, thank you so much for having me today. And I would probably say my favorite program of the year, since I now can't say Involvement Fair, I'm going to say um, we have a homecoming pageant that I really enjoy. I'm really proud of the way that our students and our staff work together to make it a more inclusive event um, over the past few years. And it's really evolved into a great night to get to know our student leaders and to really showcase um, some great pride that our students have in Bridgewater State. Very nice. All right, Veronica. Uh, I'm Veronica Karipi, and I'm the Director of Student Involvement at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, I oversee the Women's Center, the LGBTQA Resource Center, student organizations, and the programming board. So uh, lots of responsibility, but lots of uh, things to work on. Um, my favorite program, it may not be a good thing to say that it's not at Nebraska, but uh, it was at a previous institution. It was midnight breakfast, which occurred at 10 o'clock. Um, and it was the end of finals week, both in the fall and the spring semester. But the, I think the cool thing was is that at times we saw students that we wouldn't see at our events. Other times of the year, faculty and staff are who served uh, the breakfast. And they I never had trouble recruiting volunteers. And they actually, uh, we raffled off baked goods. Uh, when the students came in the door, they got a raffle ticket. And I've never seen students so excited to get a dozen cupcakes. You know, I just, and most of the food never left left the cafeteria. So it's an exciting event. I'm happy I get to sleep in now, but um, one that was a great tradition. Fabulous. So the, the title of today's episode is Trends and Issues in Student Activities. So I want to start off with, in the question realm by asking each of you to share one trend that you are paying close attention to this year. And let's go in reverse order this time. So I'll start with you, Veronica. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure it's, it's exactly a student activities trend as much as it is a higher ed trend, but with the passing of the new Fair Labor Standard Act, um, that's having an impact on all of our colleagues, um, but, I, but definitely impacting um, those of us in student activities of staff members that in the past have been salaried and now will be moving to hourly. And so what do we do with that and how do we manage late nights and um, crazy hours and, and flexible hours and professional development travel and I know some of our campuses student activities are responsible for community service projects which occur on weekends or um, trip programs and so I think watching that and to see how our campuses balance that how do we balance those things within our departments um, and what flexibility we have and what we don't have um, and what does that do for the morale of our staff who have been salaried in the past and now will in some way, shape, or form be, be punching a clock. Mm -hmm. right. I think one thing we're all going to have in common is that our departments are complex and include a number of areas. So if you have to choose one trend, I think whether you choose fraternity and sorority life or student union or campus programming, there's a whole long list um, that's really diverse. But I'd say one that I think spans a number of them is a focus on high-impact practices. Um, I think across higher ed, uh, we're talking about ways these high-impact practices impact student success. But if you look at the list from the AAC&U, uh, the top 10 does not really include 
most anything that um, is under our campus programming umbrella. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the qualities of high impact practices and how we can change what we do or enhance what we do or better market what we do uh, in areas like student employment. Um, I really think that with some time and focus, <coughs> employment can be a high impact practice and really does impact student success, but I just think we're a little disconnected from the conversation. So over the coming year, that's one area we're going to be talking a lot about in our office. All right, Brian G. So as I was thinking about this question, there were several things that came to mind, and, and um, I, I was trying to decide which one that I, I might want to talk about the most. And, and so I kind of landed on, on the concept of collaboration, partly because it seems like it's been a trend forever. So I don't know at what point in time a trend is no longer a trend, but it's just kind of a thing, I guess. But um, what, what made me think about it, though, is how we're being more purposeful in our collaboration. So, you know, collaboration, our approach to collaboration has just been let's throw two two entities together and try to do something together and hopefully it works and maybe it will work, but um, ultimately we're trying to make it work because you've got money and I need some of that money or you've got manpower and I need some of that manpower and the result has been that nobody ultimately likes to do collaboration then because it's it's ineffective and difficult to manage and and so the the trend that I'm seeing that that we're talking about a lot more it seems like is how do we actually have collaboration that is mission driven that you look at what where are the um, cross points in your mission statements where are your cross points in the purpose of the two organizations on a campus or the two associations within higher ed for example um, and let that drive the collaboration and have it not be about money, have it not be about resources, have it not be about the things that too often drive the collaboration, but start from a different point of saying, this isn't about that, this is about we are two entities that have a similar purpose or a similar mission, and so therefore we're going to collaborate to try to reach more people based on that. Great. All right, Brian P. So, um, it's not a current, current, current trend or a new trend, I guess, but it's an always consistent trend. Um, so I'm all about the social media and the marketing. So um, that's really what I'm keeping my eyes on right now. Um, in particular, um, you know, Periscope's coming out, and they just launched the Facebook Live and um, video-based. Um, platforms and stuff like that. So how do we implement those into marketing? Do we even use them? Um, how can we even use those for our programs and integrate them into our activities and, and whatnot like that? So that's what I'm kind of keeping my eye on right now. Great. So I'm going to stick with you, Brian, and, and ask you to share with us some concrete strategies that ensure that our programs are really appealing to a diverse group of, of, of uh, students. I just think that a really diverse population. Yeah, so um, I don't know if there's a straight and easy answer to that. Um, I think for me, um, it's primarily being aware, I think is the first step. Just aware of yourself, uh, the space you take, your campus community, um, the external community that has an impact on your uh, campus, um, and then, you know, the world issues that we're going through. And um, there's a couple things that, you know, you want to consider and whatnot, or at least that I try and consider and I advise my students, is, uh, you know, of course, the types and varieties of programs. Are you um, bringing in different student subpopulations, you know, residents off campus? Um, are they, um, you know, what kind of... Uh, 
racial uh, identities are you bringing in, uh, sexual orientation, gender, etc. Um, also thinking about your venue and logistics. So a lot of times when we're planning, and I'm coming from the activities component of it, we're so focused on the actual event, we're not thinking of the logistics, like the location on campus. Can all your students get to that location, either by bus, walking, biking? Um, in your venues, do you have stairs? Do you have ramps? Do you have elevators? How are you going to get your students to the actual uh, location? Thinking about lights, strobe lights, um, with different um, um, conditions such as epilepsy, um, and your decorations and props. So are you having latex balloons or not for those with allergies, stuff like that. Um, and then I think the other component that you can, is a good strategy, is working with your marketing. So really taking a look at what are the images, the words, the graphics that you're using. Are they reinforcing stereotypes? Um, are you, can you use uh, more gender neutral uh, terminology? Um, are you able to make special accommodations for those with uh, accessibility needs? And do you let them know that on your marketing? Do you let them know that on your event page? that, you know, they can call your office and say, hey, I want to come to this, but this, you know, I, ha I do have accessibility needs. Can you accommodate that? I mean, how do you get that word out? So um, I think those are some of the strategies that we've been trying to implement here at Michigan State. Um, but there's a, there's a plethora of additional, you know, resources and ideas out there that we're trying to uh, get a hold of and see how we can implement those too here. Anyone else want to jump in on that? I do. Uh, one of the trends we've been seeing uh, has been the need to teach our students all the great things that Brian just offered. Uh, we can do only so much that's under our direction, but if we can empower our students to think more broadly, uh, we're going to really make a bigger impact. So things like establishing a Facebook page for an organization is great, but if you only post information there, then it's only getting out to people who already like your page. Um, so taking strategies we may think of because we get a thousand chances to make it good. Um, the students that only do a handful of programs per year, uh, we're going to have to teach them these skills as well. I think the other thing I'd add, it goes back to what Brian was talking about with collaboration. And so I know we have been working hard on how do you collaborate with organizations that have expertise that you don't have and that have a population or a, a following, like Cindy just said, that would be different than yours. And so now all of a sudden you're combining those resources and providing a program that you are getting exposure to a population that you may not have had in the past and vice versa for them. And so who are those people, those groups, those departments um, that you can reach out to um, that might uh, launch you into a territory you haven't been before with your programming? So, Veronica, let me stick with you and ask you to share with us some of the biggest challenges that we talk about trends. What are some of the biggest challenges that are facing student activities professionals today? Yeah, I think, I think it seems like forever we're talking about doing more with less. Um, and maybe it goes back to what Cindy was talking about, about best practices. You know, we will continually be faced with we can't just hire more people, we just can't uh, raise student fees to do more programming, so how are we creative with our resources? How are we um, training our students and empowering our students um, to, to do more? Um, delegating is a hard thing to do and a hard thing to learn, but um, it's something important to do. Uh, I know on our campus we're being challenged to keep student fees low. 
Um, Nebraska is a state that has raised minimum wage twice um, in the last two years. And so that has an impact on, on what we are doing. Uh, and I think the last thing is, is um, sort of that social media work-life balance that our students come in and they're sort of out there and their profiles are out there and uh, what impact will that, will that potentially have on them, uh, good and bad. Uh, and so how do you uh, navigate, uh, navigate those lines? Social media isn't a bad thing, but used inappropriately or somebody posts the wrong picture and you're, you're, you might be going down a path you don't want to go. I you want to jump in? Yeah, uh, I, I was, right away when Veronica mentioned doing more with less, I was thinking about just the concept of doing more. And it seems like we're, <laughs> we're balancing, we're trying to strike that balance as professionals now of providing a fuller and fuller calendar of events and programs and engagement opportunities while still trying to um, instill an expectation to the students that at some point in time you're going to have to entertain yourself too. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've got a I've got a seven year old who, from the moment he wakes up way too early in the morning to the moment he goes to bed, needs to be constantly entertained. He, you know, we will we will by by eight o'clock in the morning play a game of sorry, a game of checkers, and a game of monopoly. And as soon as we're done with that third game, the only thing he could say is I'm bored. And, and I, I look at them every now and then, I think, you might as well just be a student at, in college because I feel the same way. You know, we, we, at Maryville, we have an average of about 2,500 engagement opportunities a year. When you spread that out over the course of two 16-week semesters, that, that means there's about 78 things happening a week on our campus, which means about 11 per day. Yet we still, and I'm sure every one of you on this on this chat would say the same thing. We still hear the, there's nothing to do. There's not enough to do. There's not enough to do on the weekend or there's not enough, you know, and that's because when they get up on a Saturday morning or afternoon, there, there may not be something during that specific time or it's not something that they want to do and so then the extreme gets said. It's, it's there's nothing ever to do. You know, their, their neighbor went home for the weekend, which then means everybody goes home on the weekend. <laughs> Um, and so we're kind of constantly balancing that that uh, that perception versus reality of what there is to do um, versus what there actually is to do. <laughs> cool. So so along that same line, we, we I, I love that you categorize twenty five hundred engagement opportunities, right? And I imagine lots of those uh, engagement opportunities come outside of your area. Right, so you're, there's some, some competition on, on, on campus. Now, student activities programs often get criticized by those folks within the institution who see the work that we do as unrelated to the academic mission. So, Cindy, this question for you. How can we as student affairs or student activities professionals best respond to this criticism? And you talked about high-impact practices. How can we demonstrate learning outcomes not just for the student leaders, but also for the for the students that are attending. Yeah, this is a tough one, and if we could figure this out today, I think it would really be you know helpful and worth the money, and we'll go on the road. Um, but I think the the first thing we have to think about is when you say student activities programs, um, how we define the work we do on campus uh, across the profession. There are a thousand different combinations of what responsibilities are in student activities departments. 
So each of us carry a different identity to our campuses as a whole. They, for example, you know, you may be a student union director, you may be a fraternity and sorority life director, you may work with programming, or you may have community service. I have colleagues that do the student ID office. Um, so regardless of what that combination is, you have to figure out what the work we do actually is on campus and have a good elevator speech that describes the role that you play. Um, so with that said, the other piece relating to language, um, you know, the question is about the academic, so to speak, mission of the university. Shifting that dialogue to being about teaching and learning uh, rather than academic and non-academic really changes things. Um, we can see our place in teaching and learning a lot more easily than we can when we call it academic. Um, students are learning from us. Somebody's got to be teaching them something if they're learning from us, right? Uh, and because we're not doing it in the classroom, we have to figure out language to describe the environment that's a little bit more inclusive for our work. Um, so on a daily basis, I really try to carry that identity with me into what we're doing on campus. Um, so I show up to meetings assuming that I have a part in the learning conversation. Um, that hasn't always been the case, and it took me a long time to figure out. Uh, I had one of my uh, research participants actually say uh, that she said out loud um, in a committee meeting, you know, I'm not sure you brought me here to, to be the one to place the phone call to order the tables and chairs. Is that what you want from me, or do we want something else? Um, and she also said that it takes a little while to get that kind of confidence um, to be able to interact with colleagues. So I think the mindset's a big deal. Uh, once we've thought about that, then we have to think about how we set our learning goals for students and how we frame those in realistic terms. Um, we have to think about the areas where the most significant learning takes place. Um, even if you're starting from nothing, uh, we've all got gut feelings about where the learning takes place. Those are areas where you know, building a really good assessment plan, building a really good assessment cycle will give you some takeaways. Even if you can't assess everything at once, a couple of really good tidbits about learning outcomes from, from the specific work of your office is really helpful. For us, it was a long time ago when we did a, um, some work on relating to orientation and looking at the orientation leader experience. And we realized that that experience offered one of the most significant learning goals in the area specifically of diversity in our entire division. And we had just started our assessment initiatives back then, but even being able to talk about that specific experience, I would have never framed the orientation leader experience significantly in diversity education, but from there I was able to change how we did our training and how we looked at that experience for student leaders overall. So I think that last piece would be setting realistic uh, learning goals for the activity itself, um, looking at where you want to assert that piece of your work, and sometimes we just can't force it. I still struggle with an ice cream truck. I'm not sure there's learning outcomes from an ice cream truck, um, but there's ice cream, and that's important too for creating the kind of community on campus. So the last piece would be assessment is not only about student learning goals. Um, assessment also includes if your students have a sense of belonging. Do they feel connected? Do they feel like they have enough in the downtime? That's not translating and learning so much. Can, can I jump in real quick, too? I, I, I think, and I, I want to say this because I, I know Cindy long enough to know that, that this has kind of been Cindy's approach to this, and I, and I see the successful folks doing, are the ones who are doing it this way. They're not waiting to be told how to do it or what to do it. They're not sitting there saying, oh, poor us in student <clears throat> affairs. Nobody likes us as much as academic affairs. They're going out there and aggressively saying, well, if this is where our academic folks are, then, then maybe we should get to a similar place. 
Um, you know, at Maryville, we launched last year a digital world initiative, and, and among other things, it's a one-to-one -one iPad, uh, student-to-iPad ratio deal. And we, we weren't the first entity to, to be brought into this. We're, we're not even the second entity to be brought into this at this point in time. The, the, the first group with trade were the, were the professors, were the instructors, so that they were prepared for students to be using the iPads in the classroom. Okay, we, we could sit around and say, wow, it really would be nice for us to be taught how to use the iPad so that we can use it outside the classroom and then complain that nobody's doing that. Or we could do what our vice president said we were going to do is start utilizing it. Start saying so that now when she's sitting at cabinet meetings, she's able to say, you know, you guys haven't said that we need to do this yet, but we are. And here's how we're utilizing. Here's how we've we've taken processes and gotten rid of more paper in our offices and we've put them on the iPad and we've done this and we've done that. And and I think if, if we saw more folks do that and say, here's where our the academic side of the house is and if and if, if they're there, they're there for a reason. And so we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to meet them where they are before they come to us rather than wait for them to come to us and then complain that they haven't come to us yet. Yeah, Cindy, I'm glad you, you, you said what you said. I, I had Gavin Henning, who's widely known nationally for, for assessment efforts, on, on an episode last month, and I asked him <laughs> a very explicit question. Do all activities have to line up with the mission of the university? And I was surprised to hear him say no. And, and you're right. It, Sometimes it's about creating an environment uh, for, for an experience for our students, and then and then I love your framing of uh, not academics but education, and and it reminded me of Stephen Quay had a, a chapter in Tested Issues by Goldus about language and words, and he talked about trying to get his students to use the word student educators as opposed to the word student practitioners. Right, so that we understood that education was at the at the root of everything that we do. So we talked about collaboration earlier, and Veronica, I'm hoping that you can give us some concrete examples on how you facilitate and encourage collaboration. And let me start. This is a, a a little pet peeve of mine. People ask all the time that we be more collaborative. And what I found is often what that means is we get people in a room together and the same people who do most of the work wind up doing most of the work again and, and people get to claim collaboration because they were in the room. Um, so how do we really get people to contribute to to the cause? Yeah, we, we use the term collaboration, but we see a lot of partnerships which are, okay, you do this and you do that, and yet we're not really collaborating. Um, in our world, we talk about collaboration being, hey, let's put these two people together or these two departments and we're going to find a solution to XYZ or whatever. Um, so for us, I think it's the, the best place for us to start is who do you already have relationships with? You know, whether that's academic, whether that's other student affairs departments, maybe you're having a conversation with someone. Student, Cindy talked about employment. Well. All of our offices are employing students. Um, me creating my own learning outcomes, well, I don't have to start from scratch if somebody else has them and maybe it's we have similar expectations or we have similar jobs. And so that could be a collaboration um, that you can do that. I think um, 
a couple of things for us that we've seen recently in a collaboration that I'm going to highlight because I'm really excited about is that uh, for years, long before I was at Nebraska, we had a great relationship with our dean in the College of Ag Sciences. He is a huge advocate for student organizations. I mean, huge. Um, not to be Donald Trump by any means, um, but a big advocate of ours. And so we're going to continue to capitalize on that. We have partnered and we have collaborated on, on many things. Um, a year ago, he came to me and said, hey, we have this student organization. We have some issues. I'm wondering if one of your staff will work with them throughout the year. They have, a, they have an advisor. We're not changing that, but we need some expertise. I got to be that lucky person. I knew nothing. It's the rodeo club. I know nothing about rodeo. Not still kind of don't know anything about rodeo. Um, but that's not what he needed me to do. Um, as a result of that, we uncovered a whole bunch of stuff. And yesterday, we finished interviews. And we will have a joint position in the fall. Um, it'll be half-time student organizations and half-time working with the rodeo club um, with the long-term goal that that person on their side will work with the advisors, the other faculty advisors in the college. Um, I'm, th I'm thrilled. Um, a year ago at this time, I would have no never told you. Um, we have been collaborators all the way. Um, all in the hiring process, we'll continue to, it won't be a perfect thing. But he had a need, I had a need, and we were able to bring those together to find a solution that we think long term he said to me yesterday on the phone, I hope this works and it becomes a model that other colleges want to replicate. <laughs> hey, I do joint positions all day long with our academic colleges if, if they'd let me. Um, and so I think it's doing that. I think another area would be um, some of us live in small communities, some of us live in very large communities, some of us live medium sized. How do you tap into what are your community resources? Sometimes you are the resource. We have such as um, certain areas where we're the knowledge and, and we are a need for the Lincoln community, we're a need for the Nebraska community, and so we get tapped a lot, but they may be able to offer something else. They may have finances we don't have, they may have expertise we don't have, but we have facilities, you know, and a population. And so I think being creative on your collaborations, um, if you want in the door somewhere and you don't know somebody, ask around. Somebody knows those people. You know, they're working with someone. And so leverage the relationships that you have if you want to have introductions to to other people. Cool. So, Brian, Brian G, BG, this, this question for you. We, we, wherever I go at conferences, I hear colleagues talking about what a struggle it is to get students to come out to their programs. Uh, and maybe part of it is what you referred to before is you've got, it's not just us, there, there are thousands of engagement opportunities on campus over the course of the year, right? So it's, there's some competition out there. So, so Brian P. talked about using social media, and I want to get beyond conventional print flyers and Facebook and Twitter. What are some creative ways you, you've come across that, that folks have gotten the word out about the program? Uh, well, I, I, 
the first thing I'll say is I think we often will say things like getting beyond Facebook and Twitter uh, because it doesn't seem to be working for us because we're not actually getting to Facebook and Twitter to be able to get beyond Facebook and Twitter. Without a, an intentional um, social media plan, an actual plan, you're not, you're not really doing social media right. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, and, and just a quick Google search would tell you 10 best tips and practices of, of a social media plan, for example. I'm sure most of our campuses, I mean, we've got a couple faculty on our campus who are social media experts. So, um, you know, one of our faculty managed all social media for Sharpie at one point in time. My guess is he might know a thing or two about what he's talking about. So, Going back to collaboration, we, we brought him in. He's done training for um, our students, for our office, and that sort of thing, so that we could come up with an actual plan. I'm not saying we're good at it. I'm not saying that we've perfected it. Um, but we certainly have, have um, learned things like, for example, that you know we didn't even understand the concept until he told us a few years ago that 80% of your content on social media is not supposed to be communicating anything about your office or your programs or your events. Um, that was that was shocking to us, and and but then it made sense, and we understood why there's so many cat pictures on social media. Um, but maybe the most creative thing that we've done is not going to sound all that creative to everybody. It's it's gone back to utilizing email in a more intentional way. Um, I'm sure you've all heard comments about students don't check their email, they don't read their email. Anytime I hear that um, from folks, I, I politely look at them and say, no, they don't read your email. And that might be for a reason. And that reason is it's they don't see it as being for them. They don't see it as being relevant. They don't see it as being addressed to them or sent to them. And um, and ultimately, we we have ways that are out there. A simple mail merge can customize an email, right? Um, and and I don't know if students don't realize that that can happen or if that's a possibility. But every time I've ever used it, I get I get tons of responses directly back to me, even from students I don't really even know that well, who who apparently think I sent them that email specifically, and not not just using mail merge. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the, the perception that there's nothing to do on the weekends. Well, we realized that part of that issue was a perception issue. So if a couple of years ago, we started doing a This Weekend at Maryville email. It drops every Thursday morning at 8 o'clock. We use MailChimp. It's free to use MailChimp. Um, it goes out to about 1,000 students every week, and we have a, at least a, we have on average about a 65% open rate um, on that email. And anybody who knows will tell you industry leaders would kill for that. Market, direct marketers would kill for that kind of an open rate. And I think it just proves that students are getting their email. They're getting them right to their phone. They're just making the decision of whether or not they want to open that email based on if they think it's to them or not. Um, and so we do things to customize that email so that each student it says, Dear Brian, did you know what's happening this weekend? And we come up with, um, we've had a lot of fun recently about doing some, having some fun with the subject line of the email. And, and what, we've even had some contests where people can get to, get to write the subject line of the email and how creative they can be. And, you know, all of the things, it, all of the things that Starbucks does to get you to open their email, we can do the same thing. So I'm not sure that it's all that unique and creative. It's just for some reason we don't we don't tend to do it that often, and and we've been seeing a lot of success with with that those uh, methods at Maryville. Anyone else? 
All right. So I, I, I often explain to folks that if we don't train students how to creatively forage for new ideas, that they'll often give you the same old, same old. So, so Cindy, this question for you. How do we get students to look beyond what they've done in the past, you know, get them from, from taking out the files from last year and simply changing the dates and doing the same things they've done over and over again? Where do you get your best ideas from? Well, I think first we have to acknowledge that sometimes being stuck in the routine comes from us uh, and not students. Um, students have a much shorter turnaround time um, in leadership roles on campus than we do. And you know, really understanding uh, the frame of mind uh, when it comes to creativity is important. Um, another piece has to do with thinking about institutional expectations. Um, you can handle planning for homecoming or family weekend a little bit differently than your weekly open mic nights. Um, in some areas there's room for creativity, but there's also consequence for high profile events that makes things a little bit different. So I think when you're trying to set the stage for a planning process, you've got to make sure you understand what you're really working with. Uh, but once you understand all of that, um, thinking about where you get your best ideas, um, I think I agree that you have to guide the process a little bit when it comes to creativity. Um, sometimes I don't provide the files from the year before on purpose um, to help people think a little bit differently. Uh, but sometimes I feel like we can get creative if we learn from our mistakes from the previous year. So if there's something that we encountered that we want to do differently, a more specific identifying an issue and then a creative process on how to solve a problem um, doesn't mean you have to start completely from a blank slate. Um, so looking at it that way. And the other piece has to do with how we take inspiration from outside of our industry. Um, so thinking about cool things that are happening outside of colleges and universities. We talk a lot here in my office about how do we make that a program, uh, depending on whether it's something we saw on TV or something that is happening in movies or something that's happening even in companies. How do we bring it here and make it a program um, is always a fun question. And then the last piece I would say is just engagement with the professional community. Um, no matter what your choice of higher ed association is, some engagement with a community of other people who do what you do on different campuses is so important. Um, you don't have to go to every conference, um, you don't have to read every tweet, but figuring out a way to engage with the profession uh, really does help uh, creativity a great deal. So Brian P., we, I've had you quiet for a while, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this next question. Along the same lines of, of coming up with, with new ideas, what are some of the elements that separate, separate the average programming experience from really a wow-like, unforgettable experience. Like, like, how do you get students to think bigger than, you know, an open mic night? And an op and those kind of programs serve a purpose. But how do you think get them to think about the experience? Right. So I think there's there's kind of two parts to it. There's the students who coordinate and plan the events, and then there's the students who attend the events. Right. So I think for the students who plan and coordinate the events that we work with. Um, I think kind of what Cindy was saying, um, taking an old event or an annual event is okay. I think the challenge is to push back on them and ask them, all right, you, you need to add a new component to it. What can you change from last year's event? Um, how can you tweak it? Um, what, did, what were those uh, pieces of feedback that you got from last year? How can we change those into another component of it? 
it. Um, I also think that it's for them the biggest part is the learning and the self-discovery that they find within themselves on the journey of creating the event. Most times in most of my uh, post-event um, wrap-ups with my students, um, we'll spend 30 minutes you know, talking about the logistics, what went wrong, what went right, what should we make note for next year. But then the other um, hour, hour and a half is spent on the things they didn't realize working with this individual or how to collaborate with this office or that they didn't even know that this office existed and what that meant and how that even shifted how they approach their advising um, for their academics or how they work with their um, suite mate in their residence hall. Um, so I think it's that self-discovery that they find the most memorable. And then as far as the students who attend the event, um, I think it's the engagement and just the sense of being welcome and a part of something. Um, the event could be a really small event. Um, we had a night in Nashville event here. Um, surprisingly, it wasn't our largest event. It was kind of small, about, uh, I think we had, what, 60, 70 people, so one of our smaller events. But everyone loved it because everyone was very engaged. Um, they were brought into it, and they were made made to feel like they were important, whether they were just there to attend, whether they were to volunteer, um, whether they partook in all of the line dancing or not. They, they were made, made to feel a part of something, and I think that's what most students are looking for on some level, and so the their their most memorable components are when they're engaged and when they felt like, oh, hey, someone took interest in me, or someone asked me how was my day while we were line dancing at this Nashville event. So for me, I think that's that's some of the uh, ways or the things to think about when you're creating your programs or when you're working with your students to create your programs is how to make those components memorable. Sometimes it's the most basic stuff, but it's that basic stuff we sometimes overlook when we get so ingrained into the, the details and the logistics of the actual events or the programs. So, Veronica, this next one for you. Sometimes we, or not we, people outside of, of student activities will, will discount the amount of time and effort and, and particularly the intentionality uh, around the work that we do, like recruitment and selection, training, marketing, um, program selection, identification of campus partners, which you've already talked about. Looking forward, what are some of the competencies and skills you think student activity advisors and administrators will need to develop and acquire over the next few decades that they might not have right now? It was the few decades part that really, you know, threw me for a loop. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on what conversations are we having on our campuses about our students and, and what are those skills and those individuals are going to be those professionals of tomorrow, right? Um, so I think one of those is how do we continue to have face-to-face -face conversations, um, things that don't involve a screen? Um, and, and that emotion. I, I was amazed a year ago, um, we were talking about some training and how difficult it was for some of our students to, to do this activity that they were doing. They're like, we don't talk to people. You know, so, so <laughs> sad state of affairs, I guess. Um, so, so what is that? How do, we, how do we keep reminding them of that? And how do we continue to enhance those interpersonal skills as we use the technology that's so important for us to have? Um, I think another one is to challenge them to be um, to keep reading, right? It's that kind of lifelong learner process or concept, but um, I know when we graduate, we're ready to be done, and <laughs> we don't want to look at another book. And, and 
I'm not suggesting it has to be a textbook, um, but there's a lot of amazing articles and books or TED Talks or whatever. Keep reading and learning um, from your colleagues. Um, and so how do you do that? And how do you take what you're learning to share with others? Uh, I think we're all in this together. And so that skill and that desire to, to continue um, to learn new things will be important. Uh, we're talking a lot about grit and resilience. I won't pretend to know the difference between the two, but at times it feels like our students, um, they're not sure how to handle those, those failures. Um, and maybe it's a little bit of the concept of everybody gets a trophy, um, but things are tough. And maybe it goes back to what Ryan, Brian was talking about with his seven-year-old about entertaining themselves. It's we're not always going to all be successful all the time, and we're going to stumble, and we're going to have problems, but it's those experiences that make us stronger. Um, we all have life experiences that didn't roll the way that, that we expected them to do, and so how does that make you a, a stronger, tougher, more compassionate at times person because of, of what you've been impacted by? Uh, and I think the last thing I would say is sort of dealing with ambiguity. Um, there isn't always a well-laid plan. Um, we, Cindy talked about having a new idea, like, what? hey, let's run that program. Well, we've never done that before. It's totally different. There isn't a roadmap. Okay, well, let's, let's think, think through things, and what do we need to do to execute, execute that? And we may make mistakes, and it may fail, but that's okay. Uh, so oftentimes, I think we're having conversations with our students and our grad students, and they're, well, why can't you just tell me? Well, that's not the learning process. The learning process is sometimes trial and error, sometimes being educated guests. Uh, and so um, having that patience and, and that confidence to, to try and know that you might make mistakes, um, but there'll still be something good that comes out of it. And for the record, I never let my seven-year-old win. <laughs> for you. I get a lot of I get a lot of heat about that from my wife. So I'm glad we're not I'm glad I'm not alone there. That's right. You gotta earn it, right? If that because he actually earned it. He actually won. And and therefore I let him taunt me if he wins too. Yeah. You better believe I hold it over his head if I win. So I love it. So I I, I like what you said, Veronica, about um, not spoon feeding them. Right, having them learn, and and one of the things that we I think we all try and do is have students understand that what they're doing, particularly in the leadership roles on, on program boards, for instance, they they gain a lot of transferable skills. So how can we get them instead instead of having us identify it for them? How can we get them? I'll ask this to you, Cindy. Um, to translate what they're learning through their experience into something they can use on their resume. So the thinking about this issue for me came up when I asked one of our accounting students one year who happened to be student government treasurer, I asked her, so like, what does your faculty member have to say about the fact you manage all this money? And she said, oh, we never talk about it. And that made me pause back then about so many missed opportunities for the fact that I had this one student that was a clear-cut example of being able to use uh, what she's learning in student government to help prepare her for her chosen career. Uh, over time, I've realized, and I believe literature also supports the idea that we know students are learning through th these experiences, but we're not so great about activating the conversation as they go. 
So don't wait till you're about to graduate um, to have your first conversation about what you've learned as an information desk attendant your second year you were here. Um, so the big piece about activating the dialogue, have students have a conversation with you about what they're learning before they have to have it with a potential employer. I also think that the assessment conversation has been more of an internal thing among professionals and among educators. We haven't brought the students into the conversation about what they're learning. So if you're talking at the end of the year with your program board officers about what they learned, and they say, no, I didn't learn that, but I did learn this other thing, uh, then we may need to change the way we're approaching assessment. So I think bringing them into the conversation to talk about skills is really important. Uh, the other piece is just looking at the, the publications coming out from NACE and getting yourself well-versed in speaking about how what you're doing contributes to learning and growth. Um, this is going to be an ongoing conversation uh, within specifically student activities. We're not always front and center in the conversation about employability, but we've really got some ways to have a part in that dialogue that I think we need to harness. I love the way Cindy phrased that, uh, that the whole concept there about it being all about conversations. The, because I, I think we've spent as perhaps too much time focusing on things like co-curricular transcripts and e-portfolios and those kinds of things. And it's not to say that those aren't good, but at the end of the day, what does a student do with a co-curricular transcript? You can't submit that with an application. So until we're going to change the whole industry that that starts expecting a co-curricular transcript to, to come with your application and your resume, that means nothing. It, it really needs to be about how a student communicates what goes on to that co-curricular transcript, which is way more important than, um, than actually just being able to document it. So, Brian G, Cindy brought up translating finances in, into competencies, and, and I want to use that to segue into budgets. And, and I know you all come from different sized institutions, and not everyone has massive budgets uh, to bring in big name acts to campus. So, so what are some ideas that you use or come across for low-cost programs? Yeah, I, you know, this, this is an interesting question for me because, uh, like I said at the introduction, I've been at Maryville for 13 years. I was a student prior to working there, so I've really been at Maryville for 17 years, and I've seen the evolution of our financial resources throughout that time there. When I was um, the program board president at, at one point as a student, our budget for the entire year was $15,000. This year, uh, this past year, the program board had a budget of $180,000. And they were one, and, and at, when I was a student, we were the only program board. Now there's a couple of program boards providing some of those programs. And so now we're spending, you know, now we have access to a quarter of a million dollars, essentially, to, to do what we're doing. Yet we still do a lot that, we still do a lot of those programs that we did um, 10 years ago before we had the resources to do it because they are fun. The students love getting to do them. They have become traditions, and they engage a whole nother audience of, of folks, particularly faculty. So um, our, I know our inclination is to run out and hire a company to bring in a casino night, for example. But how fun is it, and I can tell you, it's a lot more fun, to do it all homegrown because you can get a dozen faculty who will do nothing else throughout the year but will line up in droves to be the dealers on casino night and be excited about it. It's the, the midnight breakfast example that Veronica gave. We, we have the same thing. We, we have to invent 
jobs for people to do because we have more volunteers than we do positions for them um, from faculty and staff for, for our version of, of the Midnight Breakfast. Um, a homegrown casino night, you know, even looking at when, so I, I mentioned earlier my least favorite program of the year, that's the foam party that we do every year. Uh -huh, yeah, that's how I feel, Cindy. Um, the, we started it, so our students saw the event at a NACA conference probably a decade ago, and they got excited about it. They hired the company. The company came in, and I'm sitting there. I'm looking at this guy after, after like, the second time we did it. I'm looking at this guy just kind of come and set up a bubble machine and then sit in the corner and do nothing except for laugh all the way to the bank. And I finally said, there's, there's, we, we have to be able to do this cheaper, not necessarily because we need to do it cheap, more cheaply, but because we can. Um, so the students did all the research, and we we bought we had we now own two foam machines. Uh, so we own two foam machines, and we do it. We we do our one of our biggest events of the year. We do every year for less than five hundred bucks, and and because we said it could be done better and it could be done cheaper, we can have more fun doing it. And now there's an alumni who eight years ago seven, eight years ago, bought the foam machine, did all, you know, and, and proudly boasts that they're the ones who, who, who did it that way. So um, sometimes it's the challenge. You know, this, our, our students love a challenge. They love to get to have the opportunity to try to be the best to do it or whatever. And so um, they, I find that our students just as much, even, even though they have access to the financial resources to do things well like that and spend a lot of money, they they often have a lot of fun trying to figure out how they can be as thrifty about it as well and and achieve it that way. Anyone else have any low low cost examples they want to share? I, I don't know that I have a specific example as much as saying that um, sometimes I think we pay for the act to come in because it's easier um, and. I don't know that that's always the best route for us to take, and so you might have to plan out a little further, but I agree with Brian that, that doing um, homegrown, low-cost um, uh, events were always my favorite, especially when I was on a small campus and we had much less dollars to deal with. Um, and my students, oftentimes those are the ones where they learn the most. Um, and so I think it's a good, it's a good balance to have. So often on campuses, administ senior administration asks us as, as student activities, student parent professionals to come up with evening and weekend programs. And Veronica, you and I were at a Big Ten meeting two years ago where we talked about it. When we got down to it, what we revealed was most people, when they're talking about this and, and, and talk about the success of these programs, are really talking about billiards and movies. So has anyone here come across any solutions that are not those two uh, that have actually brought students out um, and gotten them engaged? We have a fairly new weekend campus life initiative uh, emerging through our office, so we're a little new on the area of focus, but co-sponsored events always do a lot better. Um, than isolated uh, one-shot deals here. You know, we're doing tallying up all of our numbers and looking at where our best engagement opportunities happened. Um, but we find that you know when we take our larger events and sponsor them on the weekends, uh, this is an area where co-sponsorship is key. I think for us, it's um, looking at the university schedule 
and what else is going on. So we know that our students are going to stay um, stay around on football Saturdays, and so programming on Friday nights is much more effective when football plays at home the next day. Uh, and so students want to go to things. So they have a dance that they said, oh, it's never going to work. We always have to do it on a Thursday night. And they moved it to Friday, and, and their numbers went up. Um, and so I think timing sometimes can be your your ally in that, especially if you want to try something new. Uh, we did, I mean, a plug for this neon catastrophe was a huge hit um, on our campus. Yes, you just pay them and they come in and do it, but our students, like, were through the moon. And we had huge, and even students that didn't want to participate in the event, but they wanted to watch, there was this nice sort of a ring around the paint pit um, of people that, that were watching. And so I think um, find your successes in those high-profile things. Hypnotists do well. Um, but, but time them when you know that you're going to have a population that's going to be around. Yeah, we, we try to – we do events throughout the year that take advantage of being in the St. Louis area as well, whether it be sporting events, um, going to theaters, plays and you know things like that and and the weekends are a great time to do that because you've got a lot more time uh, to to travel to and from the programs I mean I say travel it's a 15 20 minute drive but there's a lot more involved in in an off campus event than there is an on campus event and so weekends provide those opportunities to to do just that and sometimes I, the the time the time frame that we're always challenging our students, kind of in, in the context that Veronica was just saying, um, to think about is sort of that Sunday afternoon, evening time frame, um, because we've seen a lot of success with that lately. So we brought the Chicago Boys acrobatic team. Um, I can't, it was either this past August or the year before. They're all running together. But um, we did it at 7 o'clock on a Sunday night, and, and the place was packed. We had, we had a huge crowd for it, and, and it's not like they really even knew what it was. We, they just, they, the students did a pretty good job of promoting it and letting, kind of trying to communicate what the program would be. Um, but ultimately, we, we talked a lot about how it was sort of proof that that Sunday evening time frame is, is a good time frame where people have kind of, they're ready to sort of re-engage in the week and so doing it through a program is a great way. Can I just add one more thing on this, Tony? Yeah. Uh, one thing we've talked a lot about is the difference between filling up a calendar and weekend campus life. So you can have the best acts in the world and some really great events, but if students can't get good food in the cafeteria, or if the library is not open when they need it to be, um, they're not going to stick around. So I w this year we're really focused on how do we broaden the conversation from just filling up the calendar to looking at the student experience. Excellent, excellent point. So I, I want to be respectful of, of our time here, and I'm going to give you each 30 seconds or less. I'm not going to get out my, my red, yellow, green timer here. Um, to share some additional resources that might help viewers continue to learn about some of the topics or issues uh, that we've talked about today. Let's start with you, Brian P. Are you talking? No, we'll come back to Brian. Brian? Brian G. Uh, sure. So this is probably a little bit of a 
shameless plug since I'm currently on the board of directors, but uh, I, I one of the things that we utilize a ton on our campus is NACA's Campus Activities Programming Magazine, and um, we, we have a stack for years and years that go back, and we refer to them all the time for a lot of these topics that we've talked about. And I've even had students go back and kind of catalog the, the topics that are, that are involved in some of these um, magazines so that when a student comes in to me and says, we, we need some help with some late-night ideas, we need some help with some weekend programs, we need some help with low-cost budget or low-cost programming, we can pull out these magazines that we have that are some are current because they just came out and some are four or five years old, but they provide a wealth of knowledge and resources. Great. Uh, Brian P., are you back? Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes. Cool. Uh, so I was going to say, um, I love reading all the blogs. All the There's a lot of blogs that Student Affairs Professionals put out and the Essay Collective and whatnot. Um, I love reading those for ideas and um, just kind of taking a look at seeing what's out there. So that would be my suggested resource. Great. Cindy. Uh, I want to add one more NACA resource on the topic of employability um, in the career conversation is a new member benefit. Um, that's called NACA Next, which is a free um, self-assessment tool for students. Um, so any NACA member schools, you can use that today uh, with your students and have them take a self-assessment about the different NACE um, employability skills that comes back actually with a customized report that offers involvement suggestions to them about ways they can broaden their skills. Veronica. You know, I, th I think those guys were so so specific. Um, I think I would just talk about professional development. Wherever you find your professional home, um, I can I can tell that Brian's an ACPA fan based on what's in the background of his office. Um, ACA is a sponsor, or NASBA, or NACA. I mean, what whatever that is, I I think that those all of those organizations provide wonderful resources to all of us. Um, and I think looking at things like this. You know, webinars don't take a lot of time. Um, many of those associations have online online communities, so you can network and dialogue with peers across the country and people you may or may not ever meet um, in person, but are doing what you're doing and want to help. And and I would also challenge people: don't get school size makes a difference, but you don't always know the experiences that different people have had. And so what they do or who they partner with um, and what experiences. So I think um, a lot of our ideas, we just have to uh, tip them a little bit to have them fit our campuses. And so I think continuing to learn, continuing to read, and I think the easiest place to look is professional associations. Um, it's, it's a plethora. It also will also give you information, I think, related to higher education, which I think is also important to figure out um, which I think has been mentioned of what else is going on on our campuses that are impacting what we're doing um, as opposed to the only thing that we have control over. Great. Well, thank you to, to all of our, our guests today for sharing your time and knowledge. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our program sponsors. Um, related to, to what you just talked about, Veronica, um, tuning into issues occurring on campuses, uh, we're going to do a special edition webinar next week. Heather, Heather Shagasser, my co-host, will be back from the Netherlands. 
for an episode called The Dialogue on Orlando with Dr. Chakora Martin, Dr. Amer Ahmed, Cindy Love, Dr. Stephanie Bondi, and we've got two other folks that we're still waiting to hear back from. So I'm sure that will be a very lively, uh, engaged dialogue, both online and, and through the Twitter feed. So I hope folks will share that and join that conversation. You can receive reminders about this and other great shows by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also check out the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to our iTunes podcast. I'm Tony Duty. Thanks for watching, everyone. I hope you make it a great week, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care.